Hello and welcome to the Morrissey Exchange podcast. The information contained within this podcast has been provided as general advice only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances or objectives. You should consider if this advice is right for you and consult your financial advisor for further information. Welcome to the 27th episode of the Morrissey Exchange. I am here today with Mr. Cam Duncan, Sharon Partners Debt and Hybrid Model Manager. Cam, thank you for taking the time to provide an insight into the world of interest rates. Two weeks ago, I conducted an interview focusing on the impact of rising inflation and rising bond yields on real estate and specifically listed property investments. Today, I'd like to continue with the same theme, but this time focusing on the best places to hide for those looking at at holding cash or term deposits. So without any further ado, Cam, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Ben. Would you be good enough to explain your career to date for the listeners? Yeah, no, certainly. Um, yeah, look, I've been in the uh, been in financial markets for quite some time. Uh, my my first year was in fact the uh, 1987, the year of the the, the, the crash. Uh, so that was a good entree. Um, I was a money market uh, dealer back in those days, uh, and then sort of moved to work in a, into a, a domestic bank um, trading fixed interest and uh, trading interest rate securities. Uh, be they options, government bonds, etc. Um, I was at the uh, venerable Macquarie Bank from 1997 to 2014 in uh, various roles there and, and got pretty heavily involved in um, high yield uh, securities, including bank hybrids and so forth, convertible bonds. And, uh, and then uh, in 2015, um, moved with another gentleman, Stephen Agnos, to Shore & Partners, where we set up uh, a new business here, separately managed accounts, uh, and a sort of a fixed interest business um, where I still reside. So that's it in a nutshell, Ben. Perfect. So given that timing, you actually uh, provided a wonderful segue into my first question. You started in 87. Mm-hmm. Interest rates were on their way up to yep. an all-time peak. Yep. And then since then, they've done nothing but decline. So we've pretty much seen a downward spiral in interest rates over the last 30 years. Is that over? Well, look, you know, it's um, clearly there's signs out there that it may well be. Um, You know, it's always dangerous to try and pick bottoms, as they say. But, um, you know, we've we've got, we've had some sort of pretty big red flags of late in terms of um, some inflation numbers and, uh, you know, a lot more volatility effectively in, in bond markets. Uh, and let's face it, you know, we're at cyclical and historical lows in interest rates. Uh, we've never seen them this low before elsewhere and certainly in Australia. And uh, so I, I, I would say to you that it's, you know, for fixed interest, fixed interest investors, it's probably a prudent move to start looking at floating rate securities. And you, you've, people have voted with their feet. I mean, you know, we've, we've heard from some of the banks uh, that are, have reported over the past couple of weeks and... Um, they are, uh, you know, they're seeing um, a deluge of uh, people wanting to lock in fixed rate um, mortgages. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the banks are becoming increasingly reluctant to allow you to lock in the fixed rate mortgages. So that 
suggests that they think that interest rates are on the way back up again as well. So what do you expect bond yields to do over the next 12 to 24 months in Australia? Do you expect to see a rise of half a percent, one percent? Look, it's, yeah, no, it's a very interesting question. I mean, you know, we had a pretty dramatic response recently, um, you know, particularly with the Reserve Bank pulling back from their yield curve control. And by that, I mean, you know, they've been out there sort of um, keeping the uh, yields all the way up to three years down at the cash rate at 0.1%. But recently we saw a spike in, in yields out to sort of 2024. So there was an April 2024 bond that they were keeping at 0.1%. And then sort of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, it suddenly spiked and moved up to more like 0.8%. And uh, then in their sort of, you know, the, the following meeting, the Reserve Bank said they're no longer going to uh, buy bonds in, uh, buy that particular bond to keep it down at the cash rate. So I wouldn't say they've capitulated, but um, it kind of, it probably dovetails with their backing off in terms of their QE, their quantitative easing. Um, so they're moving down to sort of $4 billion a week. So, I mean, they're still doing a lot to stimulate and keep rates low. Um, but you know, I've seen it before over over many years being in the markets, and the fact of the matter is, the Reserve Bank can keep the cash rate at 0.1%, but if the rest of the the market pushes rates higher out along the curve, and that's where banks fund themselves, and that's their cost of capital, um, then rates are going to go higher. So I would say definitely risk is to the upside. Just for the listeners, what uh, Cam's referring to as far as the four billion is concerned is buying in the bond markets. Um, the buying keeps the yield compressed because basically the yield is 100 less whatever the yield is. So the yield goes up, the price goes down, the price goes up, the yield goes down. Um, so with, with the RBR, I mean, I actually read an article um, yesterday, I think. What's today? Wednesday. Um, where Governor Lowe was still dogmatic about his belief that even though they've pushed the potentiality of interest rates uh, to move at the official level uh, in 2023. He still wasn't convinced it was going to happen and he thought it was crazy that they would move around 2022. So why do you think, at least up until Cup Day, the Governor of the Reserve Bank did hold fast on the official rate at at 0.1% when you and I are seeing evidence that suggests otherwise and and the live markets are refuting this stance pretty clearly? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, Ben. I mean, the um, you know the markets are telling us that rates are going to go up in 2022, um, and uh, you know the Reserve Bank's more sort of the end of 23, maybe even into 24, that that would start to happen. So maybe the truth somewhere in between. But the um, I, th- I think it's their perception of inflationary pressure out there. Um, you know, the recent CPI came in at 3%, so it was up 0.8% for the September um, quarter, which is a lot. But, you know, their reference, they've got a band of 2 to 3% as to where they'd like to see inflation. And from their perspective, you know, underlying inflation is still closer to 2%. So a lot of the sort of supply chain issues that we're seeing at the moment, um, you know, because coming out of lockdown, people are, desperate to buy goods rather than services, um, that, that's creating sort of a, an inflationary pressure. And they see that as a short-term uh, phenomenon rather than sort of longer term. So I think that's where the disconnect is between the RBA and the market. The market's sort of 
um, jump to the conclusion that that's more a structural increase in inflation. Okay. What about from a global perspective? What do you expect interest rates to do uh, around the world, starting with the United States? Look, I think, you know, they're definitely the, the US and even Europe are certainly not as dovish as we are in terms of interest rates. Um, you know, the US has already moved to, to reduce the uh, level of their QE. Um, and, in fact, in the UK, they're already talking about interest rate rises. So um, that, that's the big difference. You know, they're actually having a dialogue over there about interest rate rises, whereas here they're saying it's just not on the, not on the table at the moment. So, um, you know, to be fair... Um, I think, you know, in the US, they're seeing greater inflationary pressures than we are. Um, we've got a different situation. Um, but having said that, you know, um, the cynic in me sort of says, um, you know, for, for Australia to be standalone in that regard, um, you know, given our bond rates move very often quite in lockstep with the US bond rates, um, you know, we really have to look offshore for some guidance and, and, and it looks like sort of rates are, on the move over there, in essence. Just very briefly, you just used the term dovish, which a lot of listeners would have heard on the TV, and the term hawkish as well. What do mm. those two uh, terms actually mean? Um, dovish is is sort of, uh, it's a, I think it's a US-centric reference um, just to uh, um, monetary policy and fiscal policy that will um, lead to lower rates. Um, and hawkish is the is the opposite of that. So it's yeah, that, that's what that term means. Thank you. What about our northern neighbour China? Do you have any read on what is happening with monetary policy there? Oh, look, it's it's always hard because you know it's 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 obviously a much more closed economy and um, political considerations there are sort of paramount. But and and to that end, I mean, you know, just. Um, stuff I've read recently, recent reading would lead me to believe that um, they will they will retain a pretty easy monetary policy. They might even look to drop rates given what's happening in their property market. And, you know, Ben, your listeners are probably aware of, you know, all, all, all the stuff that's been happening in relation to uh, the big property um, developers over there, uh, like Evergrande, um, that's in sort of um, strife and has, has um, missed some of its debt payments, albeit paid them, in the two-week grace period. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of pressure there in terms of um, the levels of debt and uh, bond repayments that those companies have got. So that they're kind of under pressure to keep rates low. So it's sort of out of sync with the rest of the world, really. It's an interesting point, isn't it, because you could have the, um, the Chinese who are trying to squeeze commodity prices down to, to ensure the property development is uh, more affordable, it's cheaper to do. Um, but equally, you know, the Chinese have something like two-thirds to three-quarters of the individual's wealth tied up in property. So it's such an important uh, piece of the puzzle in, in China itself. So we could have an interesting time where the, the Chinese are keeping interest rates low or pushing them lower and, uh, and the rest of us are pushing them up. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's look at the numbers involved when you when you talk about interest rates and and the cost associated. So can governments, particularly the US government, actually afford interest rates rising? And um, for example, the current US GDP is running at about 21 trillion. The current level of government debt 
in the US is around 29 trillion. So it's now, now well and truly exceeded their GDP. And the federal funds rate is a ridiculous 0.08, which is basically nothing. So from a very late perspective, that means their repayment costs per annum on that 29 trillion is about 23 billion. So let's say those rates rise by 1% or 100 basis points. That's an increase of 290 billion off the back of a single uh, interest rate or one percentage interest rate rise. Can the most powerful economy in the world afford for interest rates to rise? And if not, what can they do about it? Look, I think it, it's it's something. It's it's a it's a really complicated discussion. And uh, I, I read something the other day that um, you know, with interest rates where they are at the moment in the US, the, their interest bill is actually lower than where it was in two thousand and eight, just by virtue of you know interest rates being so much lower, notwithstanding this massive increase in in um, in debt, so uh, government debt, but. Um, it must limit the amount that rates can go up, you would have thought. Uh, and, you know, certainly in Australia, the, the RBAs sort of um, put it out there that they see the top end of rates at the moment um, at around the sort of three, three and a half percent level. So we're in a different regime and situation to where we were even a decade ago, much different. Um, now, having said that, there's always the, the other discussion that goes hand in hand with this is that, um, if inflation is coming into the system, then perhaps you know one of the things that, that governments can do and the US could do is to inflate their way out of their level of debt. So um, you know, which which in essence, it, it's a bit of a, an esoteric concept, but that you know the value of your um, debt diminishes. Well, you're paying off your debt with um, a currency that becomes worth less. Um, by virtue of inflation, so you, you, your actual debt burden reduces. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think it is it is going to be a consideration for them in terms of how rapidly rates go up and to what magnitude. It certainly seems like that's the likely outcome, doesn't it? That no, they're not going to be able to afford the the debt repayments as simply as that. But they will inflate their way out, i.e., the debt in comparison to the value of the economy or the assets associated with the economy becomes correspondingly less and less as time passes. Mm, that's right. All right. So back to Australia. Um, how can investors avoid or at least offset the risks associated with rising interest rates and inflation? Uh, do we have a product that can do that? Well, we certainly do, Ben. Um, you know, we, we one of, in fact, our flagship um, separately managed account product, the Shaw Managed Accounts uh, um, Hybrid Income SMA. Um, and, the, you know, the great thing about this is they're um, all floating rate securities. So just to flesh out what that means, um, these things pay a quarterly uh, distribution. And every quarter, the that um, payment amount, that interest rate is reset based on a fixed margin added to whatever the three-month bank bill rate is. So if interest rates go up and the Reserve Bank's forced to put push cash rates up and bond rates go up, everything in between goes up as well, um, including the three-month bank bill rate, um, and that's what you benchmarked off. So whereas if you go out and buy a you know, fixed-rate bond, any fixed-rate security, you are locked in at that rate. When rates go up, what will happen to the value of that security is it'll go down because of the opportunity cost of being invested in a security that is not at a market rate any longer. 
So for, to, to get the new marginal investor into that fixed rate security, um, the price needs to be lower to, to attract them. So, um, you know, there's been huge inflow into floating rate securities generally, which is understandable. Um, you know, Aussie, where's the Aussie 10-year rate now? It's about 1.83%. Um, US, it's about 1.63%. So rates are still very low, but, um, you know, they have moved up significantly. Um, three month, the three-month bank bill rate is still only about four basis points at the moment, um, four or five basis points. But, um, you know, that, that could dramatically change. And obviously, if you put cash rates up, that goes up. So it's a, it's a, it's, you're not subject to um, a potential capital loss in the same way as you would be owning a fixed rate security. Okay, so if an investor was looking at moving money out of cash or even the other way, moving it out of equities to reduce risk, yep. um, and they put money into the hybrid portfolio, Yep. Um, what sort of returns would you expect to be able to achieve in that portfolio? Yeah. Look, at the moment, um, you know, we've just done our uh, October reports. Um, so the expected yield to maturity on, on that portfolio at the moment, there's about 22 securities um, across the portfolio at different sort of maturities uh, or to different call dates. And uh, around 4%. Um, including franking. So that's 4% grossed up for franking is what you would expect at this point in time. Um, you may or may not get some capital gain along the way too, but that is the sort of expected um, yield to call, as we call it at the moment. So you've been running this portfolio since 2015, I think it was. So yeah. what, what has the return been on an average basis per annum over that period? Um, look, the, the, the return since inception is, um, and in fact, the one-year return are both around 6%. Um, we've, got a, we've got an objective on this portfolio of RBA cash rate plus 3%. So we've done sort of, you know, a lot of calculations and just looked at historical returns. And that's sort of um, pretty much the midpoint of what you would expect over time on this type of portfolio. Um, we have achieved better than that. Um, which which I'm very pleased to uh, to say, but um, but yeah, I mean you know that, that that's probably a good benchmark uh, to look at. Sort of expect sort of circa three percent over cash. Okay, so given it's a pretty healthy sort of return compared to what you can get in cash, yeah, is it risk free? No, no, it's not. Well, uh, what are the sort of risks we're looking at? It's 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 much lower risk than um, shares or the equity market. Um, this portfolio that I'm, I've been referring to is invested predominantly into major bank hybrid securities. Um, so these are these are a security that the banks issue as part of their capital. So you know the main activity of a bank is obviously home lending and other lending. Against that, um, you know there's various sources of funds for that. One's deposits, um, but they also um, can issue these types of securities to raise money. And they can issue debt offshore and so forth to raise money uh, to fund the home lending um, activities. So, um, but the, you know, as part of part of the the buffer against that lending, they've got to they've got to hold um, they've got to issue equity. Obviously, that's their sort of um, first buffer if there's problems um, in terms of bad debts and so forth. And then sitting above that, you've got hybrids, subordinated debt, and then senior debt. So it ranks above equity, but below traditional debt. 
Um, and what that means is technically um, it, these pay dividends the same as shares, um, but you have what's called a dividend stopper. So if even one cent of a dividend is being paid on the um, bank shares, you must pay the full dividend on the hybrid security. Now, we saw recently, interestingly, um, you know, a couple of the banks defer and not pay their interim dividend um, sort of uh, into the pandemic. Um, and a similar thing happened in Europe, similar thing happened in New Zealand. And the, the regulator sort of said to the banks, look, we want you to preserve capital and, um, and, and, and sort of effectively uh, push them to lower their payout ratio on their dividends. But even though those dividends were missed on the ordinary shares, the regulator was quite happy for the banks to continue paying uh, dividends on their hybrid securities. We saw that in Europe, we saw that in New Zealand, we saw that here. And part of the reason for that is it would be um, a massive hit to confidence and uh, to, you know, to the whole banking system if those dividends on hybrids weren't paid. So technically they don't have to be paid uh, and, and you should work on that basis. But to date, we have never seen them not paid. So, and, you know, of course, the banks have resumed paying dividends as they normally do uh, in the normal course of business. And so that's not really a discussion at this point in time. But, you know, they do have some equity-like features is effectively, Ben, what I'm, what I'm getting at. Uh, but the volatility of these securities is, is much lower than equities. Um, you do get periods of greater volatility. We saw that into the GFC. We saw that into the pandemic, you know, when COVID first broke uh, back in 2020. But um, it's, um, you know, they, as, as they have invariably always done, they just, uh, you know, they got hit down and then mean reverted because at call date, where you expect to have the security call for $100, you've got a, a tendency to gravitate back towards that $100 value as you get close to the call date. Yep. Okay. So it sounds to me like there's two fundamental risks. One is the solvency of the investments being the banks themselves. Yes. Um, and to the market risk that, you know, you might get people panicking and wanting to raise capital. Exactly right. They, they do that uh, in whatever um, space they can find money. And quite often that can be those areas that are actually the least risky, but have performed the best, such as such as the hybrids. I, sh I should mention I was I was looking at the performance of your portfolio, the SMA hybrid portfolio during the pandemic. Um, and I think at the low point the market fell 30% and you guys were down something like 7 or 8%. Would that be right? Yeah, that sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so it's important that people realise, well, the reason it went straight back up the way it did is because people always, investors always know that, you know, these things can be redeemed for $100 in cash. So it's not as if um, you have to wait that long for people to look at those sorts of issues associated with this type of investment. Um, yeah. How much money do you manage in the Shore Hybrid SMA? Um, so we've got um, in the SMA at the moment sort of uh, around 500 million. Um, we've got, you know, various other uh, sort of mandates that we manage too. So all, all up we're managing circa 900 million in uh, just in hybrids and, uh, you know, a total of about um, over 1.6 billion across other strategies. So, uh, so you know, it's grown grown very strongly and uh, probably stronger than we would have expected, but macro factors in the environment and, you know, the fear of interest rates and, and you know, just and the other thing is just a really low interest rate environment has 
um, meant that people have looked at these types of securities because you're getting such a poor return, as you alluded to before, in cash and cash-like securities, investments like term deposits. So, uh, you know, for, for anyone that needs to derive income to, to live, it's been challenging, and this is just um, an asset class that, that has suited in that regard. Fantastic. Um, so would your recommendation for uh, borrowers, i.e., um, home buyers, homeowners, mortgage holders, to be to lock in to lock in rates now. Look, I, I, I've done it. Uh, yeah, I, I locked my rate in sort of uh, a few weeks ago. Um, all the banks are telling us that you know rates of fixed rates have already gone up, um, and there's sort of a limit to it too because the regulator doesn't want the banks to have beyond. I think it was you might know better than me, Ben. I think it was thirty percent of their book in fixed rate. Um, and they don't make as, you know, their margins aren't as good out of the fixed rate book as they are the variable book. So um, they're, they're under a natural pressure to put, you know, when there's more demand for fixed rate to put the rates up. But, uh, you know, I just it's just hard to see um, rates going a lot lower than here. Uh, well, can they, really? No, I mean, you know, the, the Reserve Bank's already said here they're not going to go negative. Um, like they did in Europe and, and, and so forth. But um, never say never. Uh, but, you know, the risk's got to be to the upside. I think it's pretty clear. Well, that, that logically suggests that if that's what we're looking at doing from a borrowing standpoint, from a lending or investing standpoint, we should be increasing the exposure to floating rate notes, yep. um, such as the hybrids. I think so, yeah. yeah. Any final thoughts? Um, Look, you know, the interesting thing is you have people that invest in fixed-rate notes and and sometimes government debt thinking that, you know, from a credit risk perspective, it is very safe, but you can get huge capital volatility, huge movement in the capital price, the price of these securities, by virtue of moves up in interest rates, and um, that can be very damaging for a portfolio. So I don't, you know, a fixed-rate, fixed-interest component in a portfolio isn't necessarily offering um, a buffer, the buffer that you might expect. So I think floating rate notes and securities have got a big role to play. Fantastic. All right, thank you everyone for listening into this interview. If you've got any queries uh, about the discussion or require any other information, please either call us on 9268 shoot us an email, jump onto the website uh, at www.morrisseygroup.net. Cam, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Ben. The Morrissey Group is a corporate authorised representative of Shaw and Partners Limited, ABN 24003-221583. Our financial services guide is viewable at www.shawandpartners.com.au. Any content within this podcast is subject to the terms and conditions of Shaw and Partners Limited's disclaimer, as viewable at www.shawandpartners.com.au forward slash disclaimer.